together today receive these words of scripture from Jonah chapter 4. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, sweat of anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head and save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to it that attacked the bush, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. So if you've not been here every Sunday this month, just to let you know, we've been working our way through the whole book of Jonah, and so far, we have covered certainly the best-known scenes. Jonah receives a call from God and runs away from it, or tries. That's likely a familiar refrain for anyone who has felt a form of calling on their own lives or their work. Likely even more familiar, though, is that this boat has an encounter with a storm on a route to Tarnishish, and uh, subsequently, Jonah thrown overboard, swallowed by a big old giant fish or a whale. Maybe we've heard this one before. Outlandish, of course. The idea that someone could somehow run away from God. Outlandish, of course, that a fish could swallow a person whole, the person survive, and give thanks from the belly, and be spewed out, happily landing on a beach, probably with that little drink with an umbrella, <laughs> and having a little sip. Well, I'm sure that uh, some of these stories were a little funnier in their original context, but they are full of humor for sure, and so they also play on unexpected outcomes, trying to trick those who are receiving the story. Here our prophetic character, Jonah, has been sent off with this message of repentance 
or else destruction. And that should have sparked some kind of note of familiarity with the receivers to say, oh yes, yes, and now he will go out and he will fail or he'll be killed. How tragic that we are so evil and cannot repent. Only to hear that actually Jonah was successful and it only took him one sentence. And then from king down to canine, acts of repentance and contrition and change and belief in God, even within this large, evil enemy city of Nineveh. But before we get all the way into our closing story, we missed a little bit. For the king's plan to work, there had to have been a scene at the palace. And the king gives out the decree for the first time, how it is all supposed to happen. And we get the words of the king about the sackcloth and the animals, no food or drink for anyone, and also the piles of ashes, all the servants and the soldiers and the royal court have been gathered around, the advisors, the priests, listening in. Yes, king. Yes. Wonderful plan that you have made. Yes, we do not want to be destroyed in 40 days. And they slowly take up their responsibilities. Probably the older members first from the court. Yes, king, I will uh, I'm go and uh, attend to the dissemination of these instructions in the market square. And some others head off further away, up to the north, off to the south, the east, and the west. Until it's just, just a couple of, uh, couple of new guys remaining there with the king. And they say, king, what shall my job be then? This wonderful plan that you have developed to save us. How may we help? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate you sticking around. Actually... In order for this to really work, what we're going to need is uh, somebody has to go out and get all of the cats, okay? Uh, You're going to need to go all through the city, get every single cat, and then I'm going to need you to put these tiny uh, sackcloth shirts on every single cat in the city. That can be your job. Thank you for your help. We love having you here. Welcome aboard. Don't forget the piles of ashes. That was not, it was somebody's job. The plan doesn't work if the cats don't have shirts, okay? <laughs> that had to be someone's job in this story. Of course, this is also where we get the saying. It's like herding cats. That, that saying comes from Jonah. You didn't realize that. I, I know. It was, uh, yeah. It was also the advent of the litter box. That's how they got them to stay on the ashes. Let's stick with this slightly imaginative, but possibly true, portion of the story for a moment. Presumably, Jonah watches all of that plan taking place. And I'm imagining him seeing the people running through the roads and through the alleyways, chasing squirrels and trying to get them to wear their sackcloth, and he's thinking, what in the world is all of this? Surely this ridiculous place will be destroyed. Yet God 
nudges in and watching as well, says, I don't know, meow, I kind of like this place. They got it. They were here for it. It's fine. And for whatever reason, it is beyond me. It's absolutely beyond me. But for some reason, this was all very displeasing to Jonah. I would have thought it was hilarious. Mad at God, mad at everyone else, Jonah perches himself out on a hillside to watch and wait for something or someone to be destroyed. Our translation today says it this way. The Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And the Lord asked this a few times. But in the common English version, I I like it a little better. It says, is your anger a good thing? Jonah's anger is quite deep. And his apparent response is social withdrawal and then sulking on the hillside. And in an attempt to be a little bit sympathetic to Jonah, it's maybe not too surprising because stress is cumulative. It it builds little by little. And unaddressed, it can lead to our angry and aggressive behavioral responses. Jonah has left home. He's been tossed overboard into the ocean. He's been swallowed by a fish. And then now he is surrounded by people who he otherwise considers his enemy. Likely throughout his entire life, he's been fed doses of outrage about the people among whom he now lives. No no doubt feeling further antagonized since they will not be destroyed. Even though one guy tried to put sackcloth on the bull, that guy should definitely be destroyed. This just seems to be life for a biblical character destined to be an object lesson for all of us. He never stood a chance, and neither did the little shrub. The general consensus on the scholarship for this chapter is that Jonah's anger is rooted in his ego, and it needed his deep need to be correct or right in the public square. He's feeling betrayed and embarrassed by God after delivering a message that will not come to, be, to pass. He will be labeled a false prophet, not a successful one. In that case, it's his self-centeredness that keeps Jonah from being able to celebrate the conversion of an entire city that used to be evil. And his role of bringing about, he can't even bring himself to celebrate that. He just wanted to be right, even if it meant the destruction of everything around him. Of the readings I've been doing, one of the suggestions of what to do with our anger is to try and carry it out to its logical end in your head, mind you. Carry your anger out to its logical end. So maybe we can cool Jonah off with that a little bit. This anger of Jonah's had to be carried out to its logical end would mean the complete destruction of the city, all of Nineveh. But maybe for this exercise, we need to think about the little pieces that go into that, that would be destroyed. It's the buildings, it's the walls, it's the waters, it's the crops, it's the people. Every sibling that is present in this city, old and young, the newest babies to the eldest mothers, all of the animals would have to be destroyed as well and not towards some kind of justifiable end where people are fed, but just destruction. An absolute wasteland would be created where once a large, great city 
existed. And I would presume also the many shrubs that are there would have to be harmed as well. Also, Jonah could be right. So his team could win. Is your anger a good thing? In seeking to correct or help Jonah and the receivers of the story, we're we're given a lesson on compassion as a possible antidote for ego and anger. Jonah, in his misery, seems to find a bit of respite as God appoints the shrub, and it grows up overnight to cover his head, and it provides him a defense against the heat, a nice break for our self-centered Jonah, who has been so wronged and been through so much, and he doesn't even get to witness the destruction of an entire people. But God has also appointed a worm, and it comes and it destroys the shrub, not leaving his home city, not being tossed overboard, not being swallowed by the fish, not even the mercy shown to Nineveh, not the heat, nor the sultry winds, but this friggin' worm. No, man, this friggin' worm with a job, killing Jonah's shrub. This is what ruins Jonah's life. God gives it one more try because clearly Jonah, as an object lesson, has not had enough yet. Is your anger over the shrub a good thing? Yes! Yes, it's a good... Yes, my anger is a good thing over the shrub. You killed my shrub. I'm so mad. So mad. Yes, my anger is good. The last words that I registered about four weeks ago at this point were along the lines of Dear child of God, God loves your enemies. If we are truly to understand that God loves all of us, we must recognize he loves our enemies too. God does not share our hatred, no matter what the offense we have endured. There's the voice of the late Bishop Desmond Tutu in his book, God Has a Dream, A Vision of Hope for Our Time. We can't receive those words and that statement without recalling his life and work in South Africa and everything he personally and communally endured under apartheid. God loves our enemies, whatever we've endured. And then I stood up only to find that my bag that was right over my head on the train had been stolen. It was a wedding present from my best man. And someone walked by opportunistically on the very crowded train and snatched it. Some worm, I assume not appointed by God, had just taken it as they walked by. I would love to say that I had a very calm, level-headed, non-drowning type response from the very beginning. This was not the case. Uh, The standard flood of emotions 
the biological responses of heart rate and adrenaline were all present. And as I scanned, a rapidly exiting crowd of hundreds to no avail, oh, I was getting very, very angry. And it was definitely on my face because the person that had been sitting across from me quickly threw their arms up like this and said, it wasn't me. I was like, okay. Well, luckily for him, I was all prayed up after four days at Taizé in France doing chanting and prayer. I had, I was literally riding that train to get to the top of a mountain in Switzerland, a literal mountaintop experience. And Bishop Tutu had just reminded me, God loves your enemies, which of course is hilarious for a traveling pastor who has been robbed in a kind of teeth gritting, that's definitely going in a sermon when I get home. Of the many articles I've been reading about anger and preparation for today, one of the advice that was given was don't dwell on the situation that made you so mad. Well, luckily for me, I had some guardrails because the Swiss rail system doesn't even have a form for stolen property. Uh, They only have a form for lost property. And the lost property form comes with a very helpful email after 10 days saying, it's been 10 days. You're not getting your item back. (laughs) Furthermore, non-residents can't file a police report online. And the police station was already closed. So no dwelling by me on this thing that has made me so mad, certainly not after today's sermon. The trip was way too good, way too good to let that little worm blow it up for me. Anger is an emotion. It is characterized by antagonism towards someone or something that you feel has deliberately done you wrong. And this is our definition offered by the American Psychological Association. We all get angry is the first thing for us to keep in mind for this sermon series wrapping up called Let There Be Joy. Getting angry is not making us any less spiritual or less Christian or anything like that. It doesn't mean that we have somehow failed in our faith or spiritual journey. We all get angry sometime about something or many. The healthiest expressions for our anger they say, is for us to try and translate it into assertive expressions of our need. And this takes a lot of skill and development and mindfulness around our own emotions, our choices of words, our body language, including, of course, the most difficult to control, which is my face. But Jonah isn't there yet either, and I'm sure not all of us are. Other forms of expressing or managing our anger include suppression and redirection, getting our mind off the anger and focus on something positive. Convert the anger into some sort of constructive end. A thin thin line, this one, because not allowing some expression or failing to deal with our anger can lead to the internal consequences of us either being angry with ourselves or serious health consequences like depression and hypertension and high blood pressure. 
Failing at all to find healthy expressions of anger can lead not only to those internal biological hazards, but also the external unhealthy expressions through passive-aggressive behavior or, quote, a personality that seems perpetually hostile, constantly putting others down, criticizing everything, and making cynical comments. Sometimes we preach those words which we need to receive. It's more than worth noting our own daily stress and irritations that can build on one another. We are not looking to have us become the person on the hillside awaiting the destruction of ourselves or everyone else. Maybe you're already feeling some kind of withdrawn or isolated, and you need to explore some healthful ways of expressing mild or more intense anger. Knowing that November is right around the corner, I hasten to add that it's important in our own unending political campaign culture to take steps to manage stressors and perhaps cut off some sources that unnecessarily feed the seeds of anger within us. We are also fed daily doses of outrage, curated for us, if not manufactured, to motivate the base, which in today's reality just means make and keep us very angry. And that's on top of, that's on top of the real, seemingly unchecked outrages of wars and life-stealing gun violence and continued homelessness and so much more that hurts our life together. We don't really need anyone fabricating or hyperbolizing to simply add more unconstructive anger or push us over the edge toward violence. Of the many articles I was reading to prepare for the day, the best title goes to Parker J. Palmer for What's an Angry Quaker to Do? But one of the more interesting reframing and mindfulness exercises that I read about came from Thich Nhat Hanh about embracing the child within. The idea that we should check in with the five-year-old within ourselves, a reminder that we are vulnerable as a way to have compassion for ourselves. We know the types of needs that a five-year-old or a four-year-old or a three-year-old might have. And then do the same for those around you, even those with whom you have strained relationships, see the five-year-old within them and recognize that that five-year-old has vulnerability and has needs and help that develop some compassion within you for them. If you're Jonah, you're going to want to picture everyone as a shrub. That's your goal. The point wasn't to send Jonah completely over the edge, but it was a reminder about God's presence and compassion and mercy. The whole of the narrative has been inviting us to see that God is not limited to our little small sections of creation or our people, that we do not have some special absolute claim upon God and relationships with God, that we are not the only ones capable of being right or in right relationship with God, that God is at once with us and 
with those whom we would consider our enemies, even, even those who have wronged us. God is mercy-oriented, not destruction-oriented. God has compassion for even the 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. God says, I love these morons. They're mine. That if we possess the ability to be compassionate around a small shrub, then surely we should be able to find our way clear to have compassion for our neighbors, for strangers, or prayerfully for our enemies. Jonah's had an amazing ride in this book. Massive success in creating change on a citywide scale. No doubt, fixing many of the things that we are justifiably angry about in the world. Fixing many of the things that God is angry about in the world. For an evil city to change, it means the vulnerable five-year-old and every person and the actual vulnerable five-year-olds have food to eat. It means they have safe passage. It means they have a safe place to sleep and a sense of love. Even God is angry when those things are absent. But my word, if some of it, if some of it comes together, even the first steps to correcting it, then celebrate. Exactly. Celebrate. Don't be so preoccupied by your own hurt or your own anger that you can't even any longer perceive the good that is happening right in front of you, even for a moment. Worms in life are going to come. Uh, most will not be appointed by God. We no doubt have bumps ahead, both in our personal and communal life, but we serve a God who is at work in marvelous ways all around the world. Our invitation now is not to be sucked into our own self-centered anger or the manufactured anger that others hand to us and not to be so overwhelmed by it that it steals our ability to see joy at all. Our invitation now is to remember that good will come as well, however mild or large. And when it comes, I hope you will let there be joy.